As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Amir Hussein. He is the founder and CEO of Spark Cognition, and he's the author of The Sentient Machine, a fine book about artificial intelligence. He, in addition to that, he is a member of the AI Task Force with the Center of a, for New American Security. He is a member of the Board of Advisors at UT Austin's Department of Computer Science. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In short, he is a very busy guy, but has found 30 minutes to join us today. Welcome to the show, Amir. Thank you very much for having me, Byron. It's my pleasure. You and I had a cup of coffee a while ago, and you gave me a copy of your book, and I've read it and really enjoyed it. Why don't we start with the book, talk about that a little bit, and then we'll talk about Spark, uh, about spark Cognition. What, why did you write The Sentient Machine, The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence? Uh, Byron, I, I wrote this book because I thought that there was a lot of writing on artificial intelligence, um, what it could be. There's a lot of sci-fi that has visions of artificial intelligence, and there's a lot of very technical material around where artificial intelligence is as a science and as a practice today. So there's a lot of that literature out there. But what I also saw was there was a lot of angst back in you know, 2015, 2014, uh, I actually had a personal experience in that in in that realm where outside one of my South by Southwest talks, there was a anti-AI protest. So just watching those protesters and seeing kind of what their uh, concerns were, I felt that a lot of the um, sort of philosophical questions, existential questions around the advent of AI, if AI indeed ends up being like commander data, it has sentience, it becomes artificial general intelligence, uh, then it'll be able to do jobs better than we can, and it'll be more capable in, let, let's say, the art of war than we are. And therefore, does this mean that we will lose our jobs, we will be you know, meaningless, uh, and our lives will be uh, lacking in meaning, and maybe the AI will kill us? You know, These are the kinds of concerns that people have had around AI. And I wanted to sort of reflect on notions of uh, man's ability to create. Uh, the the aspects around that that are embedded in our historical and religious tradition, and what our conception of man versus uh, he who can create our creator, uh, what those are, and how that influences, uh, you know, how we see this age of AI where man might be empowered to create something which can in turn create, which can in turn think. Um, there's a lot of uh, folks also that feel that you know, this is far away and I am an AI practitioner and I agree. I don't think that artificial general intelligence is around the corner. It's not going to happen next May, um, even though, you know, <laughs> I suppose some group can surprise us. But the, the likely outcome is that we are going to wait a few decades. I feel waiting a few decades isn't a big deal because in the grand scheme of things, in the, in the history of the human race, what is a few decades? 
So ultimately, the questions are still valid, and this book was written to address some of those existential questions, working in elements of philosophy, as well as science, as well as the reality of where AI stands at the moment. So talk about those philosophical questions, just broadly, what are kind of of those uh, kinds of questions that will affect what happens with artificial intelligence? Well, I mean, one question is a very simple one of self-worth. Uh, we tend to define ourselves by our capabilities and the, the jobs that we do. Uh, many of our last names in many cultures are literally uh, indicative of our profession. You know, goldsmith as an example, farmer as an example. And uh, this is not just, uh, you know, a European thing. Uh, across the world, you see this phenomenon of last names just reflecting the profession of a woman or a man. And it is to this extent that we internalize the jobs that we do as essentially being our identity, um, literally to the point where we take it on as a name. So now when you de-link uh, you know, a man or a woman's ability to produce or to, uh, or to engage in that particular labor that is a part of their identity, then what's left? Um, are you still uh, you know, the human that you were with that skill? Are you less of a human being? Is humanity in any way linked to your ability to conduct this kind of economic labor? And this is one question that I explore in the book because I don't know whether people really contemplate this issue so directly and think about it in philosophical terms, but I do know that subjectively, um, you know, people get depressed when they're confronted with the idea that they might not be able to do the job that they're comfortable doing or have been comfortable doing for decades. So at some level, obviously, it's having an impact. Um, and the question then is, is our ability to perform a certain class of economic labor in any way intrinsically connected to identity? Is it part of humanity? And I sort of explore this concept and I say, okay, well, let's sort of cut this away and let's cut this away. Let's take away all of the extra frills. Let's take away all of what is not absolutely, fundamentally, uniquely human. And that was an interesting exercise for me uh, what the conclusion that I came to, I don't know whether I should spoil the book by sharing it here, but in a nutshell, uh, this is no surprise that our cognitive function, our higher order thinking, our creativity, um, these are the things which make us absolutely unique amongst the known uh, creation. And it is that which, is ma which makes us uh, you know, unique and different. So... Uh, this is one question, right, of self-worth in the age of AI. Um, and another one but, but, is but sort of... Just put a bit in that for just a moment. The, in the United States, the workforce participation rate's only about 50% to begin with. So only about 50% of people work because you've got adults that are retired. You have people who are unable to work. You have people that... Um, uh, are independently wealthy, you have, I mean, all these, so we already have like half of adults not working. Is that really kind of a big, does that, does that really rise to the, you know, to the level of a philosophical question when it's already something we have thousands of years of history with? Like, what are the really meaty things that AI gets at? For instance, do you think a machine can be creative? Do you think a machine can be creative? Absolutely, I think a machine can be creative. Uh, you know, you obviously, think people <laughs> are machines. I do think people are machines. 
So our, and then if, if that's the case, how do you explain things like the mind? Um, well, no, how do you, how, how do you think about consciousness? We, we don't just measure temperature. We can feel warmth. We have a first person experience of the universe. How, how can, how can a machine experience the world? Well, you know, look, there's this old age-old discussion about uh, qualia, and there's this discussion about the subjective experience. Um, and obviously, that's linked to consciousness, because that kind of subjective experience um, it requires you to first know of your own existence and then apply the feeling of that experience to you in your mind. Uh, essentially, you are simulating not only the world, but you also have a model of yourself. And uh, ultimately, in my view, consciousness is an emergent phenomenon. There is, uh, you know, the very famous uh, Marvin Minsky hypothesis of the society of mind. And in all of its details, I don't know that I agree with every last bit of it. But the basic concept is that there are a large number of processes that are specialized in different things that are running in the mind, the software being the mind and the hardware being the brain. And that the complex interactions of a lot of these things result in something that looks very different from any one of these uh, processes independently. Uh, this, in general, is a phenomenon that's called emergence. It exists in nature, and it also exists in computers. Uh, one of the first few graphical programs that I wrote as a child in BASIC um, w w was drawing straight lines. And yet, uh, on a CRT display, what I actually saw were curves. I'd never drawn curves. But it turns out that when you light a large number of pixels with a certain gap in the middle, and it's on a CRT display, there, there are all sorts of effects and interactions, more effects, and so on and so forth, where what, what you thought you were dra drawing was lines, and it shows up, uh, if you look at it from an angle, as curves. So, uh, the, the, I mean, the process of drawing a line is nothing like drawing a curve. There was no active intent or design to produce a curve. The curve just shows up. It's a very simple example of, some, you know, a kid writing a few lines of basic can do this experiment and, and look at this. But there are obviously more complex examples of emergence as well. And so consciousness to me is an emergent property. It's an emergent phenomenon. It's not about the one thing. There's, I don't think there's a consciousness gland. I think that there are a large number of processes that interact to produce this consciousness. And, and what does that require? It requires, for example, a complex simulation capability, which the human brain has. The ability to think about time, to think about objects, model them, and to also apply you know, your knowledge of physical forces and other phenomena within your brain to try and figure out where things are going. So that simulational capability is very important. And then the other capability that's important is the ability to model yourself. So when you model yourself and you put yourself in a simulator and you see all these different things happening, there is not the real pain that you experience when you simulate, for example, being struck by an arrow, but there might be some fear. And uh, why is that fear emanating? It's because you watch your own model in your imagination, in your simulation, suffer some sort of a, uh, of a you know, problem. And now that is a very internal, right? None of this has happened in the external world. Uh, but you're conscious of this happening. So uh, to me, at the end of the day, uh, it, it has some fundamental requirements. I believe simulation and self-modeling are two of those requirements. 
but ultimately it's an emergent property. So what what do you, th- and, and you, you said a minute ago, you think it'll be a matter of decades before we have a general intelligence. Do you think, have you ever given thought to the question of whether a general intelligence would need to be conscious, would need to experience the world to be, uh, to actually be intelligent? Are, are you envisioning a kind of computer general intelligence that's creative and, and all of the rest, but actually doesn't have any experience at all? Uh, you know, this is a this is a very tricky one because you know it's very hard to say whether I have an experience. Uh, you know, you you can project on me the fact that I have experiences because we both are human beings and you have experiences, and therefore uh, I might have you know experiences as well. And we may use the same words, but they may mean very different things. It's the age-old issue of when you say blue and I say blue, are we talking about the same, not just color, but the same feeling? And we don't really know. Um, And in many cases, obviously not, because some people like certain colors and they have a certain effect on them. And other colors have completely different, uh, the same colors have a completely different effect on other people. So I don't know that uh, there is such a thing as being able to judge whether a machine has a subjective experience at a certain level of complexity, it boils down to a conversational interaction with a human being where the machine is attempting to convince the human that it does indeed have subjective feeling. If it's able to convince a human of this fact, then that's the best that any human has been able to do with another human. So I, I again, I don't know of a scientific test absent interaction with that entity, whether it's a future AI entity that claims to have a subjective experience um, or, or another human being, that outside of conversation and outside of you know just getting a sense for whether this thing has subjective experience, that there is a very clear-cut test. Um, and so in the absence of that test, that's really what you have. If the machine can convince you, then I guess it does. But... You know, we assume dogs feel pain, although no dog has ever told us that. We, we infer it. There's similarity in biology to us, the response that they have to it. But, but we don't actually know, know it. But we're confident enough that we, that we establish laws against animal abuse. So you're setting a really high bar. It's like the AI could experience pain, but it isn't smart enough to convince us that it's experiencing it. And so ethically, it's fine for us to keep abusing it. Is that true? Actually, so you raised two points. First, on the animals, we absolutely know that animals experience pain. Uh, The analogy of animals experiencing pain and a machine being conscious and, uh, and, and experiencing subjective feeling are two totally different things. Because when an animal experiences pains, first of all, you can observe that it changes its behavior in a behavior that's similar to other animals, i.e. us, uh, when we experience pain. So there's that one bit of evidence. The other thing is that now that we have uh, medicine, uh, even veterinarian medicine, quite advanced, we can see exactly what's going on in the animal. We see that the animal has nerves. We see that these same nerves transmit pain in human beings. So therefore, the existence of these nerves would indicate that the animal can experience pain, and on and on and on. And then we... We provide the animal with a painkiller, and it stops to exhibit those um, uh, those uh, painful uh, sort of you know wincing, uh, crying sounds, uh, and and therefore you know that the same chemical that has the effect on the human 
is having the effect on the animal as well. Now, at that point, you could, I suppose, still say, but do you really know? And the answer might be, no, you don't really know. But at the same time, there's such a thing as Occam's razor. Any explanation other than the one that I'm giving you, which is that animals probably experience plain, uh, pain given all of this, would be far more complex and therefore, from a scientific standpoint, w wouldn't really be the primary explanation you would default to um, in the presence of all of this evidence. So well, let me, I don't let me, think it's the same thing. Okay, let me jump into there because um, in the United States, veterinarians were taught until the 90s animals didn't feel pain. So that was, and we had all of the evidence that you just listed, observational, we understood urology and all of the rest, and yet it was still, the standard of care in veterinary science was that, that animals don't experience pain. But I'm going to give you all of that. But, but in return, you have to admit, we still don't know how far down that goes. We don't know if cockroaches experience pain. We don't know if fish experience pain. Like, there's a border at which we don't know. And, and, and I guess that's what I worry about is, is it ever the case that machines would exist at this border where we don't really know? For instance, could a tree feel pain? We wouldn't know. I, I mean, I don't think they could, but I wouldn't know if they could, would I? And so I worry about that. Like, how will we keep from, if, 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 if you're right and consciousness is an emergent property, and someday we're going to have enough complexity that it just kind of emerges. How will we, and, and you're right, we won't know that the um, creature until it can convince us. And, and I worry about the gap, but maybe I'm just thinking too far out that that's nothing we really need to worry about at this point. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think there's, uh, that's something we need to worry about at this point, but at the same time, it still makes for an interesting conversation, and I'm happy to engage. Uh, I think the point that I was making earlier was not that if a, if a system, if an AI system uh, was, uh, you know, getting into that realm of um, consciousness with an emergent phenomenon like consciousness suddenly showing up, that then we would ask it to convince us that it has subjective feeling. Uh, and, and, and if it can't, then we would somehow abuse it. I, I don't think that was my uh, implication. My implication was simply, does it have subjective feeling or not? If it is able to convince you that it has subjective feeling, then you have to assume that it does. If it doesn't convince you that it has subjective feeling, it doesn't mean that you start abusing it. You know. So, I mean, maybe trees don't feel pain. There's nothing about a tree that winces or cries. Um, you know, for most normal people, they would look at a tree and say, it probably doesn't experience pain, uh, you know, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you go about wantonly, you know, chopping trees for no reason. Uh, at the end of the day, animals experience pain, we still kill animals and eat them, right? So that's just uh, humanity for you. But I don't know that, you know, once you, once you realize that trees may experience pain, that still doesn't uh, you know, make a good argument for going around and wantonly, you know, uh, causing them potential pain. I mean, most normal people wouldn't do that. So let's talk a little bit about spark cognition. So I, I guess I have two questions. One, just for the listener who's not familiar with your company, explain, uh, explain what spark cognition does. And then maybe talk for just a minute about why, what problem you created it to solve. So uh, 
You know, spark cognition is the most ambitious endeavor of my life. Uh, I've been into artificial intelligence for many, many, many years. Uh, and um, I've done, you know, previous companies. But uh, spark cognition is something very special. We're applying artificial intelligence to industrial scale problems. There are uh, three areas in particular where we're very focused. Um, industrials, which includes manufacturing and power generation and so on and so forth. Um, aviation. And uh, this includes civil aviation of all types, including new autonomous aviation systems. And then finally, defense. So these are three key areas that we've been focused on. And uh, what I'm interested in are AI systems that make a difference in the real world, meaning that AI systems that actually control something in the real world or get data from the real world and make a decision about it. Um, but you know, I'm not of the, um, the variety of AI practitioner that can spend a lifetime trying to optimize click-through rates on ads. Um, that's not me. I like you know, marrying this technology with big physical problems. You know, how can we invent a future aircraft and how can we reinvent that idea with AI at its center? Uh, how does the future of um, autonomous combat look and what are the ethical challenges and the infrastructural challenges and the technology challenges? So Spark Cognition is focused in these three areas. I think um, the application of AI to large-scale industrial assets is going to be a major undertaking in the century. I call the century the AI century. And uh, we're, the company is completely committed with you know, major partnership with Boeing. We've actually done a joint venture with them for AI-based aviation um, with, uh, with one of the largest turbine companies in energy and obviously working very closely with DOD on the defense side. So we're trying to solve big problems in the real world and actually apply AI. Do you have trouble hiring talent right now? You know, uh, to be very honest with you, uh, we have not yet had trouble hiring talent. I think the reality is that uh, UT Austin is one of the most um, uh, amazing assets to have in this town. Uh, I'm lucky in that I am a, a Longhorn and my uh, you know, my wife is a Longhorn, and we've got many Longhorns in the family. So our ties with UT run deep. Our chief science officer at Spark Cognition is the two-time chairman of UT Computer Science. We've got very deep connections with many researchers at the university. We have worked closely with uh, the students there. So we've really gone out of our way to develop a very tight connection with UT Austin, and now also a couple of other universities outside of Texas. And um, that has been, I think, a, a, a very big plus. Uh, we've got access to great talent. And on the more senior people, you know, these are folks, obviously, that have just done their PhDs or whatever. But on the more senior front, um, we've brought in some absolutely amazing people from outside Austin. People, you know, the kinds of experience sets, for example, in government and military that didn't exist in Austin five years ago at all. Um, and those people we've been able to convince with just the um, the, the, the breadth and depth of our mission. Uh, I mean, ultimately, we aren't just talking about the dream of AI and, you know, how nice it could be. We're working with the, you know, largest aviation company in the world to build the next generation technology that will redefine aviation for the next many decades. And there's a lot of smart people that, given a cause like that and given a challenge like that, will absolutely jump at the opportunity. Ultimately, in life, you're looking to write your own story and hopefully the last chapter will leave you some nice sentences and some nice reflections uh, to, to, to recite when you think uh, you know, about all the great things you've done. 
uh, you know, there needs to be something meaningful in there. And I think Spark Cognition is a genuine opportunity for big thinkers to come and do meaningful things. And, and that has been a, a big boon for us. You know, it's really the whole application of artificial intelligence to warfare is such a hot button thing. And, and you know, one side says, look, if you can make weapon systems more effective and have less collateral damage and achieve their mission better, why wouldn't you? And then other people have a lot of concerns about machines making autonomous kill decisions. And, and I mean, you know it all. How do you, if you're, you're somebody who's involved very deeply in it. How do you kind of think it through and maybe share some of your, your, your thoughts about, about it using AI and warfare? Absolutely. So first of all, you know, uh, you know, one can say these things about oneself, and it's up to uh, people that know you and don't know you to to judge them to be true. But I'm no warmonger. I mean, I'm not uh, <laughs> of the classic mold of of some sort of a you know crazed barbarian. The idea, of course, is that uh, AI is going to be applied to defense, much like every advanced technology is applied to defense. Every technology in your iPhone came from DoD. Uh, it's being implemented in DOD and so on and so forth. There's a very, very tight connection between technology and the military, always has been, uh, literally since the beginning of technology. So that's a, just a given, right? Technology in defense is inevitable. Now, the question is, if AI is the new technology and I am responsible for creating new types of AI and I'm building new systems that do things in the physical world, I can either turn my gaze away and I can be oblivious to the applications of it, or I can engage with those who may employ this AI in ways that would be troubling to my ethics and morals. And I am uh, all for engagement. Now, once you engage, what are you trying to do? Are you just trying to sell them AI? Actually, in my case, that's not just what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is to develop systems that exhibit and comply with the laws of armed conflict. In other words, the system that is compliant with the laws of armed conflict uh, will be an ethical system per the current definition of the ethical way of waging war. You have to comply with the law of armed conflict. And in these systems, the idea is to actually minimize the amount of damage these systems do. In uh, Just very briefly, uh, in the Gulf War, we saw the second offset which was essentially the move away from dumb bombs delivered by dozens and dozens of bombers in a single strike where you could drop hundreds of bombs and you couldn't take out a single bridge, uh, but yet those bombs would fall around uh, and, and would maybe destroy homes and villages and so on and so forth. It was so inaccurate that it was inhumane. In the Gulf War, uh, we took 2,000-pound bombs and mated them with GPS devices and we're able to avoid collateral damage, at least in the way that it took place in World War I and World War II. The next step is the third offset and the leverage of AI technologies. Ultimately, if you could end a war by declaring war and taking out 17 people that are the cause of war, then the war would be over. Your objectives have been achieved. There is no need for the kind of massive collateral and other uh, systemic uh, infrastructural damage necessary. And intelligent weapons, particularly with AI, with the level of discernment that they have, do present that possibility. Um, but beyond that, you know, this is the kinetic use of AI. 
but there are many uses of AI and DOD which have nothing to do with kinetics. For example, predictive maintenance, simply making the equipment run properly, uh, cutting down on the amount of uh, fuel that's used in mobile generators by keeping them running in an optimal state, uh, being able to interpret automatically surveillance footage uh, so that you don't make mistakes and that you do proper target identification. Even when a human is doing that identification, seeing that kind of, you know, so there are many examples. Uh, people suddenly jump to this assumption of killer robots. It's not that simple. There's a lot more going on. And only with engagement do you learn and only with engagement do you get to influence and shape. And in my particular case, I am not a fan of war. No great general uh, is a fan of war. Uh, anybody that's been in war would have to be very strange to continue to be a fan of war. So it's not about that. It's about the fact that war is a fundamentally human endeavor. We have not yet gone to the level of human development to where war would become an impossibility. And while it remains a possibility, it is better to engage and is better to control these technologies uh, than to simply turn a blind eye and say, I'm just going to blindly create things never engage with anybody that might use them in a bad way, and you know, good luck to you all. So uh, to me, I've made the choice of being actively involved. All right, well, we're actually uh, at the bottom of the hour. So um, how do people keep up with you personally? Are you writing still? Do you have a blog? And then how do they keep up with Spark Cognition and the interesting things you're doing? Oh, absolutely. So I am on all the social media, so uh, you can just go to Amir Hussain, A-M-I-R-H-U-S-A-I-N.com. That's my website. You'll see all my writings, all my social handles, videos, everything there. And then Spark Cognition, which is the corporate website, is S-P-A-R-K-C-O-G-N-I-T-I-O-N, sparkcognition.com. Well, great. It's been a fascinating half hour. We touched on some really big ideas. Uh, the name of the book, again... It's the sentient machine, the coming age of artificial intelligence. And uh, it, it's as it's, it's fascinating as this half hour was. Thank you, Amir. Byron, thank you very much and hope to see you soon. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.